You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello friends, I'm excited today to bring you into the world of The Hunger Games. This original trilogy by Suzanne Collins has already proved to have a sort of cultural permanence, a popularity which hasn't waned since their release over 10 years ago. Then the wonderful film adaptations were released shortly after, which brought this prophetic story to even more audiences. The question that this podcast is interested in is why? Why are these violent, dystopian stories so prophetic for our world and for our times? Already, as I write this episode, I can identify many themes that are worthy of our attention. Today, we're only going to focus on one, the theme of sacrifice, particularly ritualized, systemized sacrifice. We'll explore why the ritual of sacrifice was so present across like every ancient culture, what it meant within Judaism, and more importantly, how Jesus Christ abolished the ritual of sacrifice once and for all. How was this historical move captured in The Hunger Games? What role did Katniss play in bringing down the equivalent sacrificial system in Panem? And how did she accomplish this? Let's begin. The Hunger Games is set in the fictional nation of Panem, which is composed of a wealthy capital in the middle and 12 poorer districts surrounding it. The story centres around Katniss Everdeen, a teenage girl from District 12, the poorest district, whose main industry was mining. During the annual reaping ceremony, she volunteers on behalf of her little sister to compete in the Hunger Games, an annual event where one boy and one girl from each district were randomly chosen to fight to the death in a televised arena-like spectacle. The purpose of this Hunger Games was the capital's way of maintaining dominance over the 12 districts, as well as to remind them of the folly of their past rebellions against the capital. Throughout the series, however, Katniss slowly becomes a symbol of resistance against the oppressive capital and its tyrannical leader, President Snow. In the first book, Katniss defies the capital in two main ways. Firstly was to befriend, rather than fight against, Rue, a little girl from the other districts. When Rue is tragically killed by another contestant in the Hunger Games, Katniss actually gives her the dignity of a gravesite marked with flowers and then signals a mark of respect on live TV for Rue's family and friends back home. But that aside, the greatest act of rebellion was when Katniss and her fellow District 12 tribute, Peter, threatened to end the Hunger Games without a victor. When it was just these two friends left, the capital tried to force them to fight to the death, but instead of playing by their rules, Katniss and Peter were prepared to lethally poison one another with berries, rather than play the capital's hand. Red-faced and embarrassed at the prospect of their Hunger Games ending without a victor, the capital were quickly forced to declare, for the first time, two victors of the Hunger Games and to celebrate the two underdogs from District 12. But the tension between Katniss and the capital had started. 
From this point onwards and for the rest of the series, the stakes get higher and higher as the rebellion against the capital intensifies. Katniss and her fellow rebels must navigate treacherous political alliances and deadly challenges to overthrow the capital and establish a new, more just society. Along the way, they confront issues such as morality of allegiance, the effects of propaganda, and the power of media in shaping public opinion. By the end of the trilogy, Katniss as the symbolic Mockingjay does lead an overthrowing of the capital, but not without great personal sacrifice. Okay, so there's the story of the trilogy in summary. Moving away from Panem briefly back into our world, have you considered how pretty much every ancient civilization has had some form of ritualized sacrifice at the heart of their culture? Whether you're Egyptian, Roman, Celtic, Greek, Chinese, Indian, Aztec or Jewish, sacrifice was not merely some fringe activity, but one that was taken with great reverence and seriousness. Some would even suggest that a civilization's greatness grew in proportion to the development of its sacrificial rituals. Hmm. Exactly what was sacrificed varied according to culture. It could be grain, the first fruits, the harvest, animals, incense, a tooth, and of course in some cultures, other human beings. Okay, so what's going on here? Why all this sacrifice? While some will just dismiss such pagan rituals as outdated, superstitious practices for a less enlightened time, look again, for maybe it is modern man that has become unenlightened. See, what people of every generation knew that we have forgotten is that there is a natural order to the cosmos and that we must live according to this natural order. We can't just invent or discard the rules. Human beings are not our own creators and we are definitely not gods. Our ancestors recognized that human flourishing depended upon conformity to God, whether God was expressed as Osiris, Zeus or Yahweh. This fundamental recognition is what gave birth to the forms of sacrifice. For at the heart of sacrifice is a recognition that God is God and we are not. And we remind ourselves of this by giving back to God through our sacrifices as a sign of our thanksgiving, our humility, and importantly, our atonement. Regarding the latter, ancient cultures actually recognized that sin was real and that sin unsettled the natural order. Hence, to restore the natural order, a cost must be paid, a sacrifice must be made. Something must exact the price in place of culpable human beings. This understanding certainly lies at the heart of the Jewish notion of sacrifice, and it is to this we now turn. From the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, the most significant sacrifice offered in ancient Israel was something called the sin offering, or a sacrifice of atonement. The idea was simple enough. For human beings to violate God's law was a serious transgression and exacted a terrible price. But instead of offering up one's own blood or one's own life in restitution, God instructed that certain animals be ritually offered up instead, and that the blood of the animal was substituted for the blood of the guilty people. And so, a system of animal sacrifice was organized and eventually developed into what we call the temple cult, where Jews would come to the temple, purchase an animal in the temple forecourt, offer that animal to the priest, and the priest would then slaughter and offer the animal for God on behalf of the people. 
Significantly for the Jews, God's presence was understood to literally dwell within the temple, in a sacred room inside called the Holy of Holies. No one could access the Holy of Holies without dying, except the high priest, and even this was only once a year. You can begin to see why the temple was such a sacred and significant place for the ancient Jews, for it was literally the dwelling place of God and the place where atonement could be made for one's sins. But, as the story of the Old Testament goes, no matter how many bulls and lambs were sacrificed, Israel kept on sinning, and even the priests themselves became greedy and abominable before God. What then would become of this temple sacrifice system? Around 33 AD, Jesus walks into the Jerusalem temple, makes a cord of whips, overturns the tables, drives out the money changers, and sends pigeons and goats and sheep scattering in every direction. He shouts, You have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. So what's going on here with Jesus? Contrary to popular belief, Jesus isn't angry that his church had become a commercial marketplace, for our biblical scholars tell us that the animal salesmen and coin exchangers had a right to be there, for only temple money could be used in the temple, and there needed to be a place to exchange foreign currency for temple money. Further, it was normal that animals would be on sale in the temple forecourt, for it would have been unreasonable to expect people to just bring sacrificial animals on foot from their hometown, which could be hundreds of miles away. So Jesus wasn't condemning the mere commercialization of the temple. Rather, he was definitively pronouncing the end of the entire system of temple sacrifice. In flipping the tables, he was effectively telling the Jews that from this point onwards, none of this would be necessary anymore, because he himself would become the new temple, the place of sacrifice that atoned men before God. He himself would become the high priest, and he himself would become the meeting place between God and man. Through his cross, Jesus would for all time be everything the temple had tried and failed to achieve. Remember that the moment Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the people was torn in two, meaning that there was no longer any barrier between us and God. As John the Baptist had foretold, the Lamb of God, offered on the altar of the cross, had truly taken away the sins of the world. Having now given you a helicopter view on the biblical scholarship of sacrifice, let's turn our attention back to the Hunger Games. Remember that the purpose of the Hunger Games was Panem's equivalent of temple sacrifice, albeit a twisted, sinister version of it. It was a concocted ritual of the capital, given to atone for the sins of the historical uprisings of the twelve districts. Further, it was an alleged means to restore rightful order across Panem. Just as the ancient sacrifices restored the natural order of the cosmos, their capital used the Hunger Games as a means to maintain order across the districts. It was President Snow's hubris way of saying, Remember who owns you, who feeds you, who is your boss. And so, for 73 years, countless young tributes were sacrificed for this false sense of order. Then comes Katniss Everdeen, 
who breaks the whole system and exposes the inhumane sham of the sacrificial ritual. When Katniss refused to play by the game maker's rules and threatened to leave the Hunger Games without a winner, the effect upon the capital was the equivalent to Jesus storming the temple, and the ripple effect of the scandal was about the same too. As you remember, the capital's response was swift. President Snow pretty much sentences the game maker to death. There are threats made to Katniss's family, and as the rebellion across the districts gains momentum, peacemakers turn into violent stormtroopers, hospitals are firebombed, and District 12 is obliterated. Why such a harsh reaction though? Why such a drastic over-the-top response? This is where Jesus' example can shed some light once again. We know today that the single event that most enraged the Jewish authorities to want to kill Jesus wasn't his healing on the Sabbath, or forgiving of sins, or his eating with tax collectors. Rather, it was Jesus' storming of the temple that enraged the authorities the most, for this was a direct attack upon both Jewish identity and authority. To fully understand the scandal that Jesus caused when he did this, I will offer an imaginative scenario that can hopefully make the symbolism more relatable. So, as you'd agree for Catholics, the celebration of the Mass would be the kind of equivalent to the temple sacrifices in terms of being the central religious ritual of our faith. Imagine then if you were celebrating Mass one day with the Pope in Rome. All is beautiful, reverent and holy. Then suddenly, while the priest was raising the Eucharist, what appeared like a mad rogue preacher off the streets of Rome suddenly storms into the cathedral, walks up to the altar, pushes the Pope out of the way, scatters the Eucharist all over the floor and pours out the precious blood onto the sanctuary before raving about how the church has become a den of corruption and that it was no longer necessary and that he, the street preacher, was the real prophet of God. Now, if you were sitting in the pews, you would be horrified and furious and scandalized, right? You'd want to save the integrity of the Eucharistic species, to side with the Pope, and to get rid of the street preacher. Well, the same could be said of both the Pharisees and chief priests, when Jesus threatened to overturn their centuries-old ritual, their way of encountering God. While the sacrificial system was still in place, the Pharisees and high priests could have dominion over the faith of the flock living like the people in the capital, in opulence and wealth. In her open defiance though, Katniss, like Jesus, threatened the authority and social order of the entire Panem, and the capital are proportionately horrified. Lest we completely demonize the capital at this time, consider that the Hunger Games is so compelling because there's probably something within you and I that would react like the capital if our sense of control and order was challenged. It's worth paying attention to this, because if the scriptures can warn us of anything, Jesus himself will usurp our sense of religious order from time to time. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. The final reflection I want to offer is the fact that Katniss's true strength comes not from her skills with the bow, but rather 
from her restoring the humanity back into the Hunger Games, and indeed to the Twelve Districts. Prior to her being a tribute, the capital had wanted the other districts to hate one another, or at best to be indifferent, for any loyalty and alliance between the districts was dangerous for the capital. Hence the very goal of the Hunger Games was to pitch district against district to literally kill each other and be celebrated for it. However, what Katniss did, especially through the befriending and burial of Rue, was to restore the humanity to the people of the districts. The voluntary sacrifice of herself in place of her sister melted away any baser instincts within the Hunger Games. Then, through her love for Peter, she showed that virtues can still prevail even in the hellhole of a gladiatorial arena. This comradeship would deepen even still into the quarter quells in Book 2, where Katniss would unite all the previous winners to work in alliance, resulting in the literal collapsing of the Hunger Games Temple. So, why am I pointing out this restoration of humanity detail? Because that's exactly what Jesus restored to the whole ritual of sacrifice. When all is said and done, it is love that is the real order in this cosmos, not guilt or fear. How many of the prophets in the Old Testament raved against the Jews for performing empty sacrifices, devoid of any true contrition or any love for one's neighbour? These prophets warned against priests who would offer holocaust to God on one hand and yet treat the widower and leper as scum. See, at the root of all sin and rebellion to God is a lack of love for God. And so, animal sacrifices that were made not from the heart, without love, could never bridge the gap between man and God. And this is why Jesus' one sacrifice could bridge the gap, because it was totally and fully motivated by love. By showing the extent of God's love for the sinner, Jesus restored the dignity of the most rejected, the poor, the foreigner, the adulterer, the sick. Like Katniss, by elevating the humanity of these forgotten people, he showed up the hollow sham of temple worship and put love where it was needed most. We need only gaze upon the cross to be reminded of this. Only one drop of blood was needed to expiate human sin. But Jesus completely emptied himself, as if to make a point and to say to even the most hardened heart, This is how much I love you. For your practical pilgrim reflection, consider where you might have become a President Snow in your spiritual life. Where do you fear a Katniss Everdeen? One who might come and shake things up a little, a bit like Jesus storming the temple. Where might you have turned a certain religious practice into a god, into an idol, substituting habit for an actual encounter with the divine? Where might you have grown too comfortable with a certain way of praying or service of the Lord? Embrace the chaos of a Katniss slash Jesus usurper and know that something entirely new is about to break forth. Something that will replace ego-centered order with God-centered order. I will leave you with this challenging and maybe slightly unsettling reflection and wish you well until next time. Until then, journey forth, take care and God bless. <laughs>